Welcome everyone to Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and this is the Ohio Unsolved Christmas Special. This is also the last episode for the year, but don't worry, we will be back on January 5th with a brand new episode. So let's just get right into today. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Ronald Gene Simmons Sr. was a mass murderer who killed 16 people over a week-long period in Arkansas in 1987 and wounded several others. A retired military serviceman, Simmons murdered 14 members of his family, including a daughter he had sexually abused and the child he had fathered with her, as well as a former co-worker and a stranger. He also wounded four others. He is the most prolific mass murderer in Arkansas history. Simmons was sentenced to death on each of 16 counts, and after refusing to appeal his sentence, he was executed on June 25, 1990. His refusal to appeal was the subject of a 1990 U.S. Supreme Court case, Whitmore v. Arkansas. Ronald Gene Simmons was born to Loretta and William Simmons on July 15, 1940, in Chicago, Illinois. On January 31, 1943, William Simmons died of a stroke. Within a year, Simmons' mother had remarried, this time to William D. Griffin, a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. In 1946, the Corps moved Griffin to Little Rock, Arkansas, the first of several transfers that would take the family across central Arkansas over the next decade. On September 15, 1957, Simmons dropped out of school and joined the U.S. Navy and was first stationed at Naval Station Bremerton in Washington, where he had met First Babe Rebecca Ulaberry, whom he married in New Mexico on July 9, 1960. Over the next 18 years, the couple had seven children. In 1963, Simmons left the Navy and approximately two years later joined the U.S. Air Force. During his 20-year military career, Simmons was awarded a Bronze Star Medal, 
the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon for excellent marksmanship. Simmons retired from the Air Force and military service on November 30, 1979, with the rank of Master Sergeant. On April 3, 1981, Simmons was being investigated by the Cloudcroft, New Mexico Department of Human Services for allegations that he had fathered a child with his 17-year-old daughter, Sheila, whom he had been sexually abusing. Fearing arrest, Simmons fled New Mexico in late 1981 with his family, first to Ward, Arkansas, in Lone Oak County, and then to Pope County near Dover, Arkansas, in the summer of 1983. The family took up residence on a 13-acre tract of land 6.5 miles north of Dover that they would dub Mockingbird Hill. The residence was constructed of two older model mobile homes joined to form one large home, neither of which had a telephone or indoor plumbing, and was surrounded by a makeshift privacy fence which was as high as 10 feet tall in some places. As a result of the home's lack of plumbing, Simmons ordered his family to dig three cesspits, one of which would eventually be where he disposed of some of their bodies. Simmons worked a string of low-paying jobs in the nearby town of Russellville, Arkansas. He quit a position as an accounts receivable clerk at Woodline Motor Freight after numerous reports of inappropriate sexual advances. He went to work at a Sinclair Mini Mart for approximately a year and a half before quitting on December 18, 1987. By the time of the killings, the number of people within the home had reduced to seven, as two of the older children, Billy and Sheila, had moved out, married, and had children of their own. Shortly before Christmas 1987, Simmons decided to kill all of the members of his family. On the morning of December 22nd, he first killed his wife Rebecca and eldest son Jean by bludgeoning them with a crowbar and shooting them with a 22 caliber pistol. He then killed his three-year-old granddaughter Barbara by strangulation. Simmons dumped the bodies in one of the cesspits that he had forced his children to dig previously. Simmons then waited for his other children to return home from school for the Christmas break. Upon their arrival, he told them that he had presents for them, but he wanted to give them one at a time. He first killed his daughter, 17-year-old Loretta, whom Simmons strangled and held under the water in a rain barrel. The three other children, Eddie, Marianne, and Becky, were then killed in the same way and subsequently dumped into the cesspit. Around midday on December 26th, the remaining family members arrived at the home as Simmons had invited them over for the holidays. The first to be killed was Simmons' son Billy and his wife Renata, who were both shot dead. He then strangled and drowned their 20-month-old son Trey. Simmons also shot and killed his oldest daughter, Sheila, whom he had sexually abused, and her husband, Dennis McNulty, 
Simmons then strangled his child by Sheila, seven-year-old Sylvia Gale, and finally his 21-month-old grandson Michael. Simmons laid the bodies of his whole family in neat rows in the lounge. Their bodies were covered with coats, except that of Sheila, who was covered by Rebecca Simmons' best tablecloth. The bodies of Trey and Michael were wrapped in plastic sheeting and left in an abandoned cars at the end of the lane. After the murders, Simmons drove to a Sears store in Russellville, where he had retrieved Christmas gifts that he had previously... On the morning of December 28th, Simmons drove to a Walmart in Russellville, where he purchased another firearm to use in the attack that he was about to carry out. His first target was a law firm where he had previously met secretary Kathy Cribbins Kendrick. Simmons had been infatuated with Kathy, but she had rejected him. After walking into the office, he shot and killed her. He next went to an oil company office where he intended to kill the owner, Russell Taylor. Russell was also the owner of the Sinclair Mini Mart from which Simmons had recently resigned. He shot and wounded him before killing another person in the building named James David Chafin. Chafin was the only deceased victim who was a stranger to Simmons. Another employee in the building was shot at, though the bullet missed. Simmons then drove onto Sinclair Mini Mart, shooting and wounding two more people. His final target was the office of the Woodline Motor Freight Company, where he shot his former supervisor twice, wounding her. He then ordered one of the employees at gunpoint to call the police. When they arrived, Simmons handed over his gun and surrendered without any resistance. Throughout the 40-minute long rampage, Simmons had killed two and injured four others. After his arrest, Simmons underwent a psych psychiatric evaluation where he was found fit to stand trial. He first went on trial for the murders of Kendrick and Chafin and was found guilty on May 12, 1988, being sentenced to death. He made an additional statement under oath supporting his sentence. I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., want it to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or in any way change the sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. He next went on trial for the murders of his 14 family members and was found guilty on February 10, 1989, again being sentenced to death by lethal injection. As to motive, a family friend told investigators that Simmons' wife had been saving up money to divorce Simmons when the killings happened. During the trial, Simmons had to be removed from the courtroom for punching the prosecutor, John Bynum, and trying to grab a deputy's handgun after Bynum had introduced a letter between Simmons and his daughter, Sheila, in which Simmons expressed anger that Sheila had revealed that he was the father of her child and that he would see her in hell. 
he refused to appeal his death sentence, stating, To those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. The trial court conducted a hearing concerning Simmons' competence to waive further proceedings and concluded that his decision was knowing and intelligent. Simmons became the subject of the United States Supreme Court case Whitmore v. Arkansas, and another death row inmate, Jonas Whitmore, attempted unsuccessfully to force an appeal of Simmons's case. While on death row, Simmons had to be separated from other prisoners as his life was threatened constantly. This was because he refused to appeal his, his death sentence. The other prisoners believed Simmons was damaging their chances of beating their own death sentences. On May 31, 1990, Arkansas Governor, later President, Bill Clinton signed Simmons's execution warrant, and on June 25th, he died by the method he had chosen, lethal injection, in the Cummins unit. None of his surviving relatives would claim the body, and he was buried in a potter's field in Lincoln County, Arkansas. Our next story comes from yourghoststories.com, and it's the author's experience with a Ouija board on Christmas. The experiences I'm about to relate happened a long time ago and are seen through the eyes of a naive 11-year-old boy. In my attempt to stick to the truth, there may be parts that are vague, so please just put this down to farther time defeating my old memory. I am the 11-year-old with two brothers, Brother P and Brother A. Being five and six years older, my mother and my father. On Christmas Day, we were all bundled into the family car to make the journey to the wild, wild west of Sydney to spend the day with all of our cousins. We would open our presents, do the occasional swap, and have Christmas dinner, say, go say our goodbyes, and then head home. The Christmas of 1968 was different. Brother P cautiously picked up a present from one of our uncles. He carefully unwrapped his present, took one look at the cover on the box, and quickly wrapped it back up. This was unusual, as all presents had that pesky wrapping paper ripped off and the presents laid bare for all to see. The present was to remain a mystery from me for days, until I tried to get into our bedroom and found the door locked from the inside. I banged on the door and told the intruders to let me in. My demands were met with a few bugger-offs mixed with go and play on the road. I countered with, I'm going to get dad, which always did the trick. The door was opened. Brother A dragged me into the room and sat me down next to Brother P. The mystery was solved. There before me was a Parker Brothers board. It had been folded out, was a light sandy color, old-fashioned shiny letters and a plastic heart-shaped pointer. I asked my brothers, where are the dice? To which they laughed and said that it was a Ouija board. My two brothers put their index fingers on the pointer and told me to gently do the same. 
As soon as my finger touched the pointer, it moved and started going from letter to letter and then pause. Brother A stated that the word that it had just spelt and the pointer moved on. As the session went on, my panic levels started to rise. It was describing an argument that I had with the school bully, which ended with me getting a broken nose and the bully walking away untouched. At this point, my finger came off the pointer and I yelled at whatever was telling the story to get their facts straight. I gave the bully a nice black eye for his efforts. I stormed out of my own bedroom, accompanied by the laughter of my two brothers. I went out into the backyard to cool off and saw my dad raking up grass clippings and putting them into the furnace to be burned off later. He came over to me and asked what was wrong. I told him that there seemed to be another story circulating about my meeting with the school bully. The next question seemed innocent enough. When did you hear this? I replied, oh, just now. He stumped back off into the house and it remained remarkably quiet for some time. I knew something was not right. Dad's face told me that he was angry. If Dad got angry, there would be tiles flying off our roofs and bricks falling out right out of the walls, but the house remained silent and undamaged. I figured that I hadn't dodged anyone in after all. However, dinner that night was a very quiet affair, with the end being signaled by Mom instructing us boys to play in the bedroom while she had a talk with Dad. This was getting scary. I trudged into my bedroom and was ordered to sit down by my brothers. The Ouija board was laid out as before, but this time I was seated on the outside. This arrangement did not last long. The door opened and Dad stepped in and sat down next to me. I'm joining in this time, he announced. I looked at the faces in the room. Brother P had stunned, had a look, stunned look on his face. Brother A was smiling at Dad and Dad was grinning at Brother A. Something was up, but I felt secure sitting next to Dad, so I just stared at the board. Dad's attention now turned to Brother P. Read the instructions out loud and don't miss anything, to which Brother P sullenly complied. Apart from finding out that the pointer was called a planchette, the instructions sounded like a load of hocus pocus, and I started to lose interest in the whole concept. Words became a blur as I went from boredom towards sleep. I was literally jolted out of this state when the planchette started to move. I realized that somehow my finger was connected to this thing again. It felt totally different this time, both speed-wise and lightness of movement. Dad and Brother Ray were working together to tell the story of a girl that Brother P had known before she had passed away in a car accident. Brother P had not treated her well and it appeared that she was determined to tell us her story in detail. The planchette moved back to the spot where it started, and Dad mumbled something like, I release you from this world. He then stood up, ordered that the board and all other parts be put back into the box, which he then confiscated and took a step out the door. He stopped, looked at me and said, 
Well, come on, we've got things to do. I was up in a flash and following Dad out into the backyard. We passed Mom, who asked, Is everything now fixed? Dad said that we'd have to see the Reverend on Sunday, but that was okay. We were able to navigate the backyard in the dark by the glow coming from the furnace. Dad must have started burning the grass clippings before dinner. The box was dropped straight into the flames, and that was the end of the Ouija board, but not the lesson. While the flames devoured the board, Dad laid open as much of the events as he dared. The modified story of my altercation with the school bully was devised and carried out by Brother P on the board just for a laugh at my expense. Tonight was different. Whatever had control of the planchette intended to punish the prankster and succeeded. He asked me what I thought of the spook tonight. I told him that she made me sad and I hoped that she was now at peace. He looked at me for a long time and then told me the moral of tonight's episode. Don't go fooling around with things that can be bigger, meaner, and more powerful than you could possibly imagine. He also told me that I could go down to the beach with Brother A on Sunday while he took the prankster to see the Reverend. Wow, he really was going to see someone big, mean, and powerful. Our next and final story is also from YourGhostStories.com. This story takes place when I was around five years old. I don't remember my exact age, but I know it was before I started grade school. The date was sometime before Christmas. I was sharing the bed in my grandmother's room at the time. In our old cotton mill house, there were no halls. Granny's two-bedroom doors opened one directly into the kitchen and one into the living room. I remember I was lying in the bed with Granny asleep beside me, looking at the Christmas tree which was lit up in the living room. One of the others in the house, either my great-aunt or cousin, apparently had not yet gone to bed. As I lay there, something caught my eye on the ceiling, just a little to the right of the bed. It seemed some sort of liquid was forming on the ceiling and dripped down onto the floor right beside me. The liquid appeared to be thick and dark, and I immediately thought that it was blood. But where was it coming from? The ceiling was just a regular ceiling with white tiles, and the liquid seemed to be dripping down from between the tiles. For some reason, and I don't know exactly why, this really scared me. I laid there in the darkness for a while, wondering what was going on. I know this sounds strange, remember I was a little kid, but I thought to myself that maybe a star had died. I crawled down under the covers and finally went to sleep. The next morning was clothes washing day. When I woke up, I heard the old ringer type washing machine going in the kitchen. I saw my grandmother great aunt and cousin standing there by the bed looking at the little pool of something brownish red on the floor they were discussing what it could be nobody had a clue they wiped it up with an old rag 
We didn't have paper towels in those days. And that was the end of it. I never told anybody what I had seen. For reasons I can't explain, I was really afraid to do so. There was no stain on the ceiling where the stuff had come down. I still have no idea what this could have been. Could it have been some sort of animal injured in the ceiling? I never heard anything un unusual scratching around up there, and there was never any smells or anything to indicate an animal had died. Everything seemed just totally silent while it was dripping down, and this was never repeated. One more event occurred in this particular bedroom sometime around the same time. I remember that I was lying in bed facing my sleeping grandmother. This was one of those old iron beds with the vertical iron bars on the headboard. Suddenly, I saw something that looked like an arm with no hand come up, like from under the bed, through the iron bars and down between our two pillows. It was just lying there, looking like an extremely long, handless arm. I remember it was very white. I didn't want to wake up my grandmother because I was afraid that it would scare her too badly. So I raised up on my elbow and looked at it lying motionless there. Then I took my pinky finger and pushed it back off the bed and through the bars. I saw it pull itself down under the bed and disappear. That for some reason did not scare me very much until I got to thinking about it later on. But ever since that time, I have made sure the pillows on the bed were pushed close enough together with no space in between before I go to sleep. Strange, huh? I'm sure that I was awake and that this was no dream. When you think about it, it was bizarre. Well, that is going to do it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the stories. If you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find the show. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Once again, thank you all for listening, and I hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we will see you next year on January 5th. So make sure to keep those doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.